Would you open God's precious holy word to Micah chapter 5 and let's think about this season in which we find ourselves and at the point of the incarnation of the Son of God when God Almighty accommodated, accommodated himself to flesh for that moment in time the most important place in the world was an otherwise insignificant little village called Bethlehem. That he would be born there was prophesied. As a matter of fact, a thoughtful student of the scriptures could go through the Old Testament and build exactly the portrait of the Christ not just that, but you could write the story of from whom he would come, from whence he would come, how he would come, when he would come, and where he would be born. All of those things are in the scriptures and beyond that even, the kind of life that he would live, the impact he would have on the world, the death that he would die, the glory that is his, and the kingdom that he will establish. All of those things are in the Old Testament. You can read it and build the case. But for us, the focus today is on the prophet Micah and his prophecy that regards Bethlehem. Micah prophesied as a contemporary of Isaiah Jose and Amos, he, he saw the impending, or actually he, Jose and Amos, he, he saw the impending destruction that came. He actually prophesied, I'm getting him and Malachi mixed up, excuse me. He prophesied they had come back and the people weren't happy and all with their surroundings in Jerusalem. So he prophesied to them about their sin and then he prophesied to them mostly though of the hope that they have that God has given to them in Christ. So with that in mind, actually mine comes from the, um, mine comes from the Hebrew uh, Scripture, and uh, I'm not working. I only have one other slide. There you go. So my verse is verse one in the here, but I think yours is verse two. So these people are all the, the Israelites. They they get kind of fussy with God. They're living lives of sin and selfishness. God sends prophets, and God tells them of of great things. Uh, that are that are theirs yet to come, and with all of the things that they are doing and the sins they are committing, God holds on to that covenant promise, that covenant that He has made to them, and keeps reminding them of His His love and His care for them. And the most comforting thought for any of the people of God, and in this case it would have been something of a remnant, 
because they were just so rebellious and cantankerous for all of their history. Though God loved them and reached out to them and protected them and cared for them and delivered them time after time. But for all of us who are of the people of God, the greatest, regardless of what happens in our surroundings, the greatest comfort that we can have is the comfort that is ours in the Christ of God, the Messiah. So it begins in that verse two, on a, and it says verse one, but that's the way it is in the Hebraica of the Tanakh. But it, okay, so there are three thoughts here that I want us to think about regarding the Christ of God and the city of Bethlehem. How he came. Number one, he came as a man. Let's look at it. And you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet from you he shall emerge for me. Bethlehem Ephrata has a rich history in the Old Testament. Though to those who were contemporary for the time about which is written in the Old Testament, it was seemingly an insignificant, rather unimportant place. Originally it was called Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. And it was there where along the way in his sojourning, uh, Jacob was when his wife delivered, his wife Rachel delivered Benjamin. She had a very difficult time in the delivery, Genesis 35. And she died giving birth to Benjamin. As she died, the Bible says, as her soul was leaving her, she said, let him be called Ben-Anoni, the son of my sorrow. Because she knew she was passing away, and indeed she died. She was buried there at Bethel. But Jacob took the son, and he looked up to God, and he said, No, this is not Benanani. This is not the son of sorrow. This is Benjamin. This is the son of my right hand the son of my power. Someday, when the Christ of God emerges from heaven victorious and is there at his throne and people are being gathered in the book of the Revelation, in the Old Testament, the priest wore all 12 stones, but Christ wears only two in his high priestly garment, on his high priestly garment. One was the jaspis, the jasper. It was the stone of Reuben, the first son. Reuben's name means behold my son. The last of those 12 sons, the last of those 12 tribes was Benjamin. And his name means the son of my right hand or the son of my 
power. The yaspis and the sardius, speaking of glory and blood sacrifice all together. Two stones, behold my son, the son of my power, the son of my glory, the son of my right hand. How could Jacob have known other than divinely inspired by God that the name as he renamed this boy while sorrowful for the loss of Rachel, the wife he loved, and yet joyful that she had left him with this last son. He would proclaim his joy in the life of that boy by calling him the son of my power, the son of my glory, the son of my right hand. Those two names, of course, encapsulate the very character of the Christ of God. And that name to Benjamin happened there at Bethlehem. The Bethlehem, the meaning of the word actually has a dual meaning. It means house of bread, which is the place of sustenance uh, and the place of fellowship. But it also has a meaning that is translated house of war. It's interesting to me that the son of God, the one who came as a man, the son of God, the son of man, as Christ called himself. It's interesting to me that humanity in all of the ages stands divided on one side or the other of the Christ of God. And from the very definition of Beit Lachim, we find that humanity is either on the side of refreshing and fellowship and joy or on the other side, which is the house of war, condemned under the wrath of God. Again, Bethel is mentioned, Bethlehem is mentioned in the book of Ruth. The story of Christ who would emerge into this life in his human form in Bethlehem is typified and written in the very story of Ruth. Ruth was a, a Moabitess. Now the Moabites were an accursed race. The law of God couldn't even apply. There was nothing within Israel that could be offered to a Moabitess according to the tradition and curse that was upon the Moabites. You know the story. Naomi had found her way with her husband in a time of famine over into Moab from Israel, from Bethlehem. They were there long enough such that those women, Ruth and Orpah the other, witnessed the death of their three Israelite husbands, the father and his two sons. Orpah remained in Moab as Naomi returned, but Ruth said to her, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. 
And so faithfully she returned to an area that had previously been ravaged really by famine. But somehow in her heart she knew that the place carried a promise from God. Although she was accursed, she could not appeal to the law. She could only appeal to the grace of God and in her case, in only one way. There was only one thing that could remove her from being accursed into being placed into the people of God's blessing, the people of God in the Old Testament. As it turns out, that one thing was that she would find favor in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer. She had this one thin veiled hope. Though a Moabitess, she had been the wife of an Israelite and had committed her life to Naomi, herself an Israelite. And Naomi discovered that Boaz, their rich, wealthy landowner relative, had had an eye for Ruth. He was kind to her, very kind to her. And so Naomi said, listen, you're going to have to do the traditional thing that our people do. And it's going to be something that's going, you're going to have to humble yourself. And you're going to have to think of yourself as nothing and place your feet, place yourself at the feet of Boaz. And Boaz, when you do certain things, will recognize that he can be your kinsman redeemer. And he may have grace on you. He may extend grace or not. And she did the thing. She, she, while he was asleep, she laid at his feet, humbling herself, acknowledging that she had no hope except for what he would give her or do for her. When he awakened, he extended his kindness. And he went before the officials and did what had to be done so that he could join his glory to her poverty. He had to descend to her so that she could ascend to him. So that he could join who he was with who she was. So that all that he was would cover her and all that she was. And she would be thus covered with the glory of the wealthy landowner, Boaz. And when he accepted and graciously became her kinsman redeemer, all that was his was hers. And all that she had been was laid upon him. She had found her kinsman redeemer. That's the story of salvation for each of us. We are of an accursed and depraved race. 
We have no hope within ourselves. None. Not even the law can save us. It cannot apply to us. We have this one hope that we would humble ourselves at the feet of our Savior. And that he would extend his grace to us. That he would join all who he is with all that we are. That he would join his glory with our poverty. That he would lay aside all that he is so that he could be with us and absorb all of who we are. And thus be our savior. And he does. He calls us to him and we come and humble ourselves acknowledging sin and the curse that is upon us that cannot be released unless Christ extends his grace to us and saves us. So that's another thing that happened there. He came as a man to Bethlehem, but secondly, to be a ruler over Israel. Now, Mavashol, ruler. That's really a stronger word than king. It speaks of one who has absolute dominion. He is so powerful that no one would even fight him. Absolute dominion. So this one who comes as a man into Bethlehem, when he comes, he's also designated to be a ruler over Israel. And to be a ruler over Israel, understand this. The son of David is the king of Israel, and the king of Israel is the king of kings. And so when the kingdom of God is established, the son of David is enthroned in Jerusalem and Jerusalem rules over everything. He is the king of all kings and all kings must submit to him. When he came to Bethlehem, not only did he come as a man, he came as a ruler an absolute ruler with all authority and all power and all glory. And we see that worked out all the way to the end of the Holy Scriptures. When kings come and bring their glory to the Christ, the King of Kings, and he teaches the nations. So he comes, number one, as a man. To Bethlehem. But the one who comes, the virgin born Christ of God, comes to be ruler and the ruler of Israel, the Messiah, the Christ of God, then by default is ruler over everything. Because some infinitely glorious day, Jerusalem collapses into new. Jerusalem, the city of God. Finally, he came as a man, he came as a king. 
Third thought, whose going forth is from of old, from days of everlasting antiquity. In other words, it is eternal and you won't ever, you won't ever be able, humanly speaking, to find those, those days. This just speaks of coming from everlasting, coming from eternity. Whose going forth is from of old, from days of everlasting antiquity. The one who was born in Bethlehem is God in the flesh by the plan of God. Only God can do this. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, speaking of Christ, he laid aside his glory and he became a man. And he died a death, even the death of the cross. So he subjected himself to the humility that was required that he might save us and bring us to himself. Here's what is being said here. The one who came into Bethlehem came from eternity. And that very one is the one whose mighty fingers in an eternity past that we cannot explain took hold of the stylus of the ages and signed his name along with his father to the eternal compact, the covenant between the father and the son to guarantee the salvation of those who are in him. Ephrata means fruitful. The, the, the base of it means fruitful, fruitfulness. And you Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little, insignificant, among the thousands of Judah, yet from you he shall emerge for me. He will come forth to be a ruler over Israel whose going forth is from of old, from days of everlasting antiquity. Bethlehem, house of bread, house of war, house of blessing, and fellowship or house of wrath and death. It all is decided over this one came as a man, came as a king, came as God in the flesh. Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, babe in a manger, came as a man to die for my sins, came as a king, acknowledged as a king, even by the wise men, and came as God 
in the flesh. And he, as a man, as a king, as the Son of God, has guaranteed to me my everlasting salvation. He saved me all by the divine plan and purpose of God. God didn't wrap his gift in tinsel and place it under a tree. He wrapped it in flesh and nailed it to a tree that we might live forever. Blessed Christ who comes from Bethlehem. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The appeal already started when you were told about the card that is there. Do you have the need and recognize the need to be saved? Or having been saved, do you recognize in your heart the need to be baptized? Or having done those two things, do you feel the need to become part of this church? Any or all of those can be dealt with as you leave. We have deacons and their wives in rooms just across the way. You'll see them as you exit. Step in with them and they'll know how to speak with you and pray with you. That's our appeal. To be saved, to be obedient to the Lord unto baptism, or to come and be a part of Shiloh. Father God in heaven, thank you for the day that you've given to us and the time that we've had here together. Oh Lord, bless us and help us as we go forth from here and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.